Um, and being up front here in front of all of you all, I cannot resist the chance to just say thanks uh, to all of you for praying for, supporting for us in RUF. I know many of you made meals for our Bible studies this last quarter. Um, I told a friend recently that um, after this fall quarter, which is almost over our second year in RUF, that I am exhaustedly ecstatic about where we are. That um, last year was a lot of, hey, I'm Nathaniel, hey, I'm Nathaniel. And then at the end of last year, we were able to form an official student club at Western. And so this fall, for the first time, when students came back, we had a table on campus and did a bunch of events and welcomed in new students. And now at the end of the quarter, we have three Bible studies that meet every week, two of which I'm able to provide dinner because of folks like you. Uh, we do social activities every week, and students are increasingly not only inviting their friends, but inviting their non-Christian friends. Um, it's, it's incredible. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for being for us, being a part of that. I'm delighted to be here today. We're going to continue taking a look at the book of Exodus. The passage for today uh, begins in the middle of chapter 7. Uh, you can follow along in your bulletin or uh, read in your Bible if you want with me. We'll begin in chapter 7, verse 14, uh, which says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water in the Nile. Seven full days passed, after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and in your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, It is as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses, the frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mighty acts in history, uh, that you have preserved this word for us as it is today. And I pray, just as you did uh, thousands of years ago, you made yourself known. I pray that you would do so again today in in our world, really in our hearts, in this room this morning, that through uh, my words and the Holy Spirit and these words recorded for us, that we may know you and worship you and turn from our idols. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So the last few weeks, Susie and I have gotten into uh, Victoria, a mini-series from the BBC on uh, the life of Queen Victoria, who ruled England through most of the 1900s. Um, Victoria became queen when her uncle passed away when she was about 18 or 19. And so in the miniseries, there's this scene where uh, having just ascended uh, to the monarchy, she enters this room called the Privy Council and she steps up on a pedestal and the room is filled with all of the most important lords and dignitaries in Egypt. Mostly powerful, grumpy, middle-aged old men. And one by one, their task is to come before the 18-year-old queen, who's a girl, and bow their knee and kiss her hand and pledge allegiance to their new monarch. Some do it with delight, many do it with grumbling. Uh, Shortly after, there's a scene in her coronation where she enters 
uh, Westminster Abbey and all the dignitaries are present and even her whole family and uh, glorious music is playing and robes and uh, all sorts of ceremony and a diamond encrusted crown is placed upon her head uh, and you just get this overwhelming feeling of, of majesty and glory. And uh, I don't know about you, but that, that fascinates me. There's something about that that, that draws me and um, based on uh, the tabloid magazines, I would imagine that many, if not most Americans, are a little bit fascinated even today with the British royalty, which when you think about it is kind of funny because we fought a war so that we wouldn't have to do that. Uh, and yet still, there's this sort of magical quality about royalty. We're going to see today in this passage is uh, that to the extent that that's good and right and true that we we revere and honor and are fascinated with this with royalty to the extent it's true it's because there is a great king who does deserve that kind of awe and majesty and will at the end of the age enter into his throne room uh, deserving all that praise and that the kings and queens of the earth serve at his pleasure uh, and in this passage today the lord makes that clear uh, before, a couple chapters ago, before the plagues begin, when Moses first comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, um, we have this God, the Lord, and he's our God, and uh, we would like you to let us, your slaves, go so that we can worship him. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Uh, so in the context of Exodus, in the flow of thought, it's uh, most likely that all of the plagues take place within the context of that question and really that the function of the plagues is to answer that question. That in Egypt, in uh, the ancient Near East, Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. Pharaoh is the monarch uh, the king ruling his nation, he's the most powerful man on earth. People don't tell him what to do. He commands. Uh, they even believe that he had sway with the gods over the natural elements themselves. And so this slave guy comes in and says, hey, the Lord is commanding you to do some things. And Pharaoh, not being accustomed to being treated in such a way, says, I do not know the Lord. Uh, and sets up this contest, this power of wills, that which king is the true king? It's a little bit like uh, when I was a little kid, about five or so, uh, my mom at one point asked me to do something, and I looked at her and I said, make me. Which may give you a little bit of insight into my children. Uh, it runs in the family. Uh, this, is, this is Pharaoh's make me moment. Look, I, Pharaoh says, I'm king. And uh, the Lord of Israel is going to say, no, I'm the king. Uh, another thing you should know about this passage is that over and over and over again in your translation, on a, you probably have on a few occasions uh, Lord, L-O-R-D in lowercase. And in many instances, you may have Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that, when you have Lord in all caps, that's a placeholder for God's personal name. Uh, in Hebrew, it's spelled Y-H-W-H, probably pronounced Yahweh. And uh, a couple chapters ago in Exodus 3, at the burning bush, the Lord gives this name to Moses. He says, this is my personal name. This is how you know me. It's based off of the Hebrew word to be. 
which is YH or YWH, kind of depending on how it's spelled. And so God's name means something like I am. I am that I am. I am that I cause to be. I cause to be that I am. And so in Hebrew, it literally says, I am, I am. And so every time, uh, because of the second commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, there was some fear uh, among the Israelites later on that if you were to take this name upon your lips and say it wrong, that you could possibly be taking the Lord's name in vain. And so the tradition developed, even in Hebrew writing, that we will, will write the vowel, we'll write the consonants, Y-H-W-H, and we'll put different vowels under there just to remind you to just don't, don't say that. You can say the Lord instead. And so they preserve that tradition in our scriptures. It's capital L-O-R-D, but there's actually a name here that says I am. Uh, Moses comes in and says, I am is telling you to let us go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who I am is. And so the entire point of the plagues is to make that clear who Yahweh is and what his character is. Uh, in uh, this, this moment, the plagues, God enacts the plagues on Egypt to make himself known. Um, it works for the Egyptians, and it works for the Israelites. From this moment forward in the rest of the Old Testament, psalm after psalm, Old Testament after Old Testament story, the prophets constantly refer back to the exodus from Egypt and the plagues as the climactic redemptive moment of the Old Testament. If you are an Old Testament Israelite, the exodus is, it's like the cross, like Jesus on the cross of the Old Testament. It's the great thing that God did for us, wherein we learned who he is and who we are as his people. So God is making himself known through the plagues. Uh, he's going to let Pharaoh know who he is. The Egyptians are going to figure out who he is. The Israelites are going to figure out who he is. And we find out actually that it, it worked for the whole known world. That 40 years later, when the Israelites are preparing to enter the promised land, Joshua sends spies uh, to scope out the land, and they come to Jericho, and they stay with Rahab. And what's the first thing that Rahab says? She says, I know that the Lord is with you because we have heard what happened to the Egyptians and what happened to all the nations along the way as you journeyed through the wilderness, and the fear of you has fallen upon the entire land. In other words, the entire ancient Near Eastern world goes into post-traumatic stress syndrome after the plagues because the Lord has made himself known. So that is the function of these plagues to answer the question, who is the Lord? And so what do we find out about the Lord? Well, the first and obvious thing is that the Lord has authority over creation and nature itself. Um, we see uh, with the plagues here of blood, of the River Nile, frogs and gnats, that each time there's information about when it's going to happen and what is going to happen uh, and when it's going to end. Moses even says to Pharaoh, hey, you call it, you call it. When do you want this to end? And Pharaoh chooses a time and the Lord complies that all of the plagues demonstrate the absolute authority that the Lord Yahweh has over the creational elements themselves. He can turn water into blood. He can 
when he can dramatically multiply frogs, he can turn dust into gnats, and it's not, uh, there's all kinds of fascinating natural phenomenon that one could use to explain, well, maybe the, the Nile turning into blood, blood is red, um, the soils farther south in Egypt are very red, and so if there's uh, just massive rains, those could all wash into the Nile, and the fish would die, and it would appear red. But none of that really does justice to this passage where the water in the streams and the ponds and even the wooden vessels themselves all turns into blood, that the Lord himself has absolute authority as creator over all the natural elements. He says himself in Exodus 9.29, This has happened that you may know that all the earth is Yahweh's. So uh, he has uh, supremacy over nature. Yahweh also has supremacy over all other kings and gods. Uh, so Pharaoh is king of Egypt. Uh, it's, it's his office, it's his title. Uh, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was descended from the god Ra. And uh, whether or not they believed him to actually be a god is uh, somewhat ambiguous. They, the Pharaohs certainly sort of referred to themselves as a godlike character. Um, but in any case, they were descended from the gods. Pharaoh was regarded to be the only priest mediating between the Egyptians and their gods. Uh, and the Egyptian gods, there's a whole pantheon of gods that we're going to talk about in just a second, and their job was to sort of keep nature working the way that it's supposed to, and Pharaoh's job was to represent the people before the gods and sort of get the gods to do what needed to happen. And so for... Yahweh to cause the river to turn to blood and the entire economic system to collapse and frogs over everything is a radical disruption, a profound undermining of Pharaoh's authority as king and mediator with the gods. That he is, that we begin the conversation and Pharaoh says, look, who, who is this Yahweh guy? No, I've never heard of this guy. And one chapter in, in chapter eight, Pharaoh says, says that he pleaded with Moses to plead with his God to remove the frogs. And so almost immediately we see uh, Pharaoh's powerlessness in this conflict with Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh has supremacy over Pharaoh. He also has supremacy over the gods themselves. So Pharaoh is somewhat godlike. Um, the Nile itself was regarded as sacred. Uh, one of the gods, Osiris, uh, it was, the Nile was referred to as his bloodstream. Uh, and the Nile, so all these first three, the plagues fall in groups of three, and the connection between these first three is the river Nile. The Nile turns to blood, the frogs come out of the Nile, and the, the gnats, probably mosquitoes, arise from the dust of the earth around the Nile. And so it's an attack on the entire ecosystem of gods around the Nile. Another one of the gods uh, was depicted as a frog in a sense of, hey, you, wanna, you want some frogs? I'll give you some frogs. Uh, one author, Albert Bayliss, wrote, uh, associated with the river Nile were the gods Kanum, Hapi, and Osiris, for whom the Nile served as his bloodstream. The goddess Heket, the wife of Kanum, was represented by a frog. Uh, so all these plagues are an undermining of Pharaoh's authority. It's also really a decapitation 
of any authority that the gods would have, that uh, all the gods the Egyptians relied on were shown to be completely powerless. In uh, Exodus 12, God says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And so in the plagues, uh, God shows himself to be supremely powerful, authoritative over nature, and authoritative over all the kings of the earth and the gods of the people. That Yahweh is shown to be the ultimate ruler, uh, not just of the Israelites, uh, he's actually even the God of Egypt, that Pharaoh serves at the Lord's command. Uh, there's this bizarre inclusion in this passage where the magicians are able to turn water into blood. They're able to create frogs, which I don't know about you, that's profoundly concerning to me. Probably one of our takeaways from this should be there is some kind of, there's, there's something happening there. There are dark, mysterious, and evil forces in this world that perhaps are capable of turning water into blood. Even then, one, if Yahweh has turned the river into blood, it doesn't really help us to make more blood. And if the land is overrun by frogs, it certainly doesn't help to have more frogs. And so even the magicians in their dark arts, though they're able to create these events, are not helping. And by the third plague, the magicians themselves throw up their hands and say, this is the finger of God. And, and by the third plague of nine, uh, they are out of the game. That Yahweh has supremacy over all things. So really, there's a sense in which we see Yahweh, the God of Israel, doing battle with and crushing the gods of all the nations. Which raises the question, um, are there other gods or are there not? Because if you've been in Christianity for any amount of time, you know that there's only one God. That's what the Bible teaches, and I believe that's what the Bible teaches. In every part of the Bible, we have passages referring to the fact that Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of Israel, also just happens to be the only God. Uh, Moses, who wrote this passage for us in Exodus, also wrote a few books later in Deuteronomy 6, he wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, our God, is one. Isaiah said, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, writing about idols, uh, says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Uh, and so the Bible teaches, and I believe this is true, that Yahweh is the only God. And yet here in this passage and in others, we have him acting, doing battle with, and, and almost referring to other gods as if they existed. Um, so there is a sense in which there are other gods. One of my seminary professors said this, the existence of other gods is not the issue. Of course the gods exist. Man makes them. He can hold his idol in his hand. The issue is action, person, 
character. In other words, God is the only God. There are other gods. But practically speaking, for the Egyptians, for the Israelites, and frankly for you and me, there are other gods. Because we act like there are. And God, for his sake and our sake, is willing to do battle with our gods that don't exist because for us they do. The Egyptians believed in their gods. The Israelites, uh, you may remember, no sooner have they gotten out of Egypt, during which time they've witnessed these great plagues, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, God's presence glowing on Mount Sinai. Uh, they've taken that all in with their own eyes and yet immediately say, you know, didn't we have it better back in Egypt? Uh, was it because there were no graves out here? Uh, it, you know, that Moses brought us out and couldn't we go back there? And so immediately they make a golden calf, which is a representation of one of the Egyptian gods. So the Israelites themselves can't get 10 minutes out of Egypt without creating other gods for themselves. And throughout the entire history of Israel, there's Asherim and Baals and worshiping on the high places. Uh, they're constantly turning over and over to other gods. So what is so attractive about other gods that don't exist? Um, pondering this for a little bit... Um, if the, here's one of the great magical truths we have as Christians. If the Bible's real, then it's really real. And so if Yahweh really is the only God, and we were created in his image, like it says in Genesis 1, we are created for relationship with him. We're created to worship God. We're created with a need, a longing, and a desire to connect with a higher power that is glorious and awe-inspiring and all-powerful. It's, it's that attraction to the monarchy thing I was talking about. We are made for that. All human beings are made for that. And yet in the fall, there's brokenness and separation in our relationship with God, and there's also brokenness in the world. And so we have a Redeemer in the Lord God of heaven and earth, Yahweh himself, and we have a secure relationship with him that he's promised to be our God and defend us through every age, and yet what we have in the present moment is uncertainty. Because I know that God will save me at the end of the age and perhaps even forgive my sins and take me into heaven, but my presentation at work is due tomorrow. Does that make sense? Uh, when I was in college, uh, I got into um, hiking uh, and uh, backpacking and climbing, as many of us in the Northwest are prone to do. And so uh, one year, I went and tried to climb Mount St. Helens with my best friend Tim Bailey and our other friend Tom Wilson. And uh, this was Memorial Day weekend, which I thought was fantastic. It's a three-day weekend. What could go wrong? Except it was raining because we live in Washington. And Memorial Day weekend's in May. And uh, I was not yet old enough to really think through the fact that when it's raining here, it's snowing up there and windy. But we were not about to be turned back. And so we hit the trail and we hiked through rain and the rain became snow and the snow became blowing snow and a whiteout, but there was a little rock ridge and we were just following this ridge up towards the peak, so determined to get there and the ridge got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and then finally Tom Wilson, who is much older than Tim and I, said, hey guys, stop just for a second. He said, look around you, what do you see? And in front of us was white and to our left and right was 
white. And behind us, just barely in sight, was the last rock of the ridge that we'd been following. And Tim and I realized with a shock that if Tom hadn't been with us, we would have kept going and 10 more feet would have had us lost in a whiteout on the side of Mount St. Helens. On the way back down, um, we're headed down fast and uh, again, it's a whiteout and Tim headed more and over to the right and we were headed more and over to the left and then we realized for a second that we couldn't see Tim. And uh, we called out his name and didn't hear back and for about two minutes he was gone. And I realized at that moment in my freshly revived Christian life that the Lord Jesus loves me and has forgiven all of my sins and will welcome me into heaven at the end of the age and if I do stupid stuff, I will die. And so there's a real sense in which we have a secure relationship with the Lord, but yet in this fallen world, we live in uncertainty in the day-to-day. And so I think part of what happens with idols and other gods is that uh, the Lord offers us secure relationship and uncertainty in the present, and the idol offers us some kind of certainty in the present. Um, that if you can go to a physical idol, and, and there's something physical there. When I was in the seminary, they had us visit a Hindu temple. And aside from being horrified, I was also slightly attracted to the thought that wouldn't it be great to get in your car and drive 10 minutes and meet your God? And be able to talk to him face to face? That there's a little bit of uncertainty, there's a little bit of certainty that comes with that. I know this. I made that. I can offer food specifically to this God. But even beyond gods that are carved images, um, anything that we go to to offer us that security and certainty and significance in the present moment functions like a God because that's what we're supposed to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel. That um, anything that, that you turn to in that moment of uncertainty Uh, of longing, of lack of meaning, and basically bow down before it and say, feed me, that is a God that we have chosen. Um, And Yahweh will do battle with them for our sake. So what do we do? uh, What does this passage mean for us today? Uh, The Lord doing battle with the Egyptian gods. If you think of it, uh, so... This Exodus was almost certainly written by Moses. After this had all happened, wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites are God's people wandering around. Moses writes down the plague for them. And and you're reading this passage, remembering what happened uh, a few years ago. And what does this do for you as an Israelite? Well, a few things. One, you're powerfully reminded just how powerful your God is. That it's powerful to remember that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the all-powerful sovereign of the universe. That our God kicks butt. He did fight. He fought with the most powerful man on earth, the most powerful nation on earth, and he crushed them. That's very helpful to remember. Secondly, it reminds the Israelites that their God is not just their God. That at this point in history, uh, the standard, what, what would be normal, so everyone had gods. You know, there was the Hebrew God, and there was the Egyptian God, and there was the Sumerian God, and every nation had gods that looked out for that nation. 
But for Moses to interact with Pharaoh and say, hey, you've got your gods and we've got our gods and our God is telling you what to do. That's unusual. That the Lord God of Israel shows himself to be not just the God of Israel uh, and not just the God of Christians. He's the God of planet Earth. And that just as then, today, all the kings and queens of the earth and all the governments and even Donald Trump himself serve at the pleasure of Yahweh. Uh, And sometimes he makes his power more felt than others, but at the end of the day, he will reign. Uh, And uh, I think there's a temptation in our moment where we sort of feel the world around us getting darker and darker to sort of circle the wagons into our little Christian circle. And it's very helpful to remember that that's actually not necessary because we need not be afraid of the world because our God isn't just our God. He's everybody's God. So you know that our God is the Lord. Uh, It's also, it reminds the Israelites, I'm sure they were reminded, that they, as a people, have a tendency, an almost automatic tendency, to stray to other gods. In the moment of uh, tension and uncertainty that there's a temptation that we face over and over again to trade in a secure relationship with a loving God with a certain amount of uncertainty in the present for certainty in the present in a relationship with an insecure God. Uh, and reminding that all the idols that we serve uh, end up eating us rather than feeding us. That you can go to... Um, Heket, uh, the Egyptian god, or power, or money, uh, or friendship, or love, if, if, if she loves you, it will make today feel better. But tomorrow, if that's where you get your sustenance as a human being, it will crush you and the relationship. If you know today that you're going to be okay because you have that much in your 401k, it will help today and it will crush your relationships with other people and the way that you spend money and treat other people around you in all kinds of ways. That every culture and every person has their idol, depending on your political persuasion, you probably have some sense of what you think our American idols are. Uh, But none of us, even as Christians, are free from that. Uh, I think the passage reminds us that we have a tendency to stray to other gods. Uh, Also, it may remind us that uh, the Lord may actually work on our lives to create temporary seasons of uncertainty in our practical matters in order to draw out our need for faith. The Lord could have saved Israel an afternoon but doesn't make it a better story if it takes nine plagues. And he could have healed the hearts of the Israelites immediately. But yet, not only is there a learning process for the Egyptians, there's a learning process for the Israelites. And in fact, I think the last thing we learn about God's character, because remember, the whole point of the plagues is to learn about God's character. We learn that he's supreme over nature. We learn that he's supreme over the gods. Finally, we learn that he can actually be supreme over people that doubt him. That uh, when the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought out into the wilderness and then immediately built a calf, God was not shocked. 
was like, oh, shoot, oh, now I can't help you. In Exodus chapter 6, he says this, here's the plan, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. In other words, the whole point, the final point, as we learn about who Yahweh is, is that the goal of all this is for him to be known, and to be our God, and for us to be his people, and for him to dwell with us in relationship. The fact that God's people turn away from him to other gods that are no gods over and over again is the great missing piece of the Old Testament. That's why we get the cross and the coming of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is to work and change our hearts so that we turn from him less and less and those other things that we go to for pleasure and security uh, in the moment become actually gradually more and more distasteful to us. That is the story that you and I are living right now. Is this Yahweh who fought against the gods of Egypt continuing to fight in our lives today against our gods? Um, Westminster Confession of Faith, and we've been talking about um, basically God is the great king over all the earth. And one of the questions is, how does Christ execute the office of a king? So here's the answer. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Also in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In other words, God's kingship is ultimately expressed by subduing us to himself that even in our doubt, he can handle that too. Uh, I'll close with this. Last quarter, we did a movie discussion night in RUF on the movie Silence, uh, which is a movie created from a book by the same name um, from a Japanese author named Shusako Endo. Uh, it's a novel about the persecution that happened to Christians in Japan in the 1600s. Um, it's really good, but dark. Don't watch it with your children. Um, so Christians are being persecuted in Japan. It's illegal to be a Christian. Uh, there's word that the Catholic priests serving in the country have abandoned the faith. And so two very passionate priests decide that they're going to go and investigate. They're going to sneak into the country under pain of death and support the Christians there. And so they journey uh, from Italy all the way around uh, to Macau, basically like Hong Kong. And they go looking for a Japanese person who can help them sneak into Japan. And they meet Kichijiro. Um, he's a side character in the story. He's a Japanese person uh, who's left Japan. And they find out over the course of the story that he actually grew up as a Christian. Kichijiro did. And his entire family was killed for being Christians. And he was alive because he renounced the faith. And we sort of discover him as this broken, guilt-stricken person. And so he helps the priests enter into the country. Um, and he has conversations with them about whether or not he can still even be accepted uh, as a real Christian. Whether or not he can repent. Whether God will ever keep him back, take him back because he renounced the faith. Uh, and it feels like this amazing story of redemption. And then he cracks. And he betrays the priests. And they're taken into custody. And, and now, this guy that you first didn't like, and then you start to hope for, and it's a story of redemption, now you hate him. 
So the priests are in jail, uh, and then Kichijiro shows up in jail because he's decided to be a Christian again. Um, but he's filled with shame, and he's wondering if it would be possible for him to repent and be a Christian again. And the priests are a little bit less sympathetic than they were last time, but they kind of begrudgingly say it's possible, and so he becomes a Christian again. And the next day they're going to torture Kichijiro, and so he decides that he's not a Christian anymore, and then he leaves again. By the end of the movie, and by the end of the book, the priests have given up their faith. But Kichijiro is back again. And I read in researching the movie that the author of the book, Shusako Endo, who's a Catholic Japanese Christian, said that Kichijiro is himself. And so you start hoping for this guy, and then you hate him, and by the end of the book you realize that there's a certain sense in which the priest's faith wasn't really ready for prime time that they did not have a, a category for suffering, and yet this miserable guy who has faith and then falls away and has faith again and then falls away and has faith again, he's actually the one that keeps going in the end. Um, and there's a sense in which those are the kind of people that the Lord has always sought out, that he desires to redeem for himself and to progressively take away over and over and over again from their idols. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, again for this morning. Thank you for this word. I pray that you would implant it in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Would you help me <laughs> stop trusting in anything else and just wait for you to work in my life, Lord? I would be better. We would all be better if I did that. I pray that for all of us. Thank you for being our Redeemer, for forgiving our sins. Thank you for rescuing the Israelites. Thank you for rescuing us. We look forward to you coming back again soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.